There are two big stories on our plate, the coronavirus and the $60 million first energy bribery scheme. And we'll be talking a good bit about both on this episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I'm here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski and Jane Cahoon. And since we have so much to talk about, we're going to get right to it. Is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine really standing behind the billion-dollar-plus bailout of First Energy's nuclear plants, even though First Energy paid $60 million in bribes to get the bailout through the legislature, according to federal prosecutors? Chris Ranowski, this one boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind that anybody would stand by a deal forged in corruption, that you wouldn't repeal it, start over. There's so many questions about this. And one of the chief ones is, does Mike DeWine have something going on with the utilities? I just don't get it. So we went into yesterday's coronavirus briefing thinking, well, of course, he's going to address this giant elephant in the room. And he didn't. You know, it was it, it almost got kind of comical as he started to, you know, talk about things like county fairs and and, and his tie <laughs> and his tie and <laughs> and you're like, okay, is he ever gonna talk about that? And he really he didn't until, you know, we got to the question and answer portion of the briefing. Um and reporters In which half the reporters kept asking coronavirus questions instead of right. speaking I mean to it's it's surprising. This. Very surprising. And so so uh, here's the but here's my question where he says I, I think it's a good deal, even if it was forged in the stench of corruption. How do you know? I mean, we we based the bailout on what First Energy said it needed. But clearly it didn't need it all because it had $60 million to pay in bribes. And don't forget, as soon as they got the bailout, they announced they were doing $300 million in a stock buyback to reward investors. So there's right. $360 million. They obviously didn't need because they were flush. So how much of that billion dollars did they need? I'm shocked that DeWine and Dave Yost, the attorney general, whose job it is to enforce this kind of stuff, don't say we are going to do a wholesale audit of this stinky deal to see mm -hmm. if we were lied to. Instead, John Houston and Mike DeWine stand in front of the entire state, which is aghast about this and say, well, the ends justify the means. It's a good deal. Okay, can I jump in here? This is Jane Cahoon. Yes. So not only did he say this was a good policy, but he said, you know, he he didn't really know that this was was tainted. And I, I mean, it just, <laughs> I mean, it's just defies, you know, I mean, everybody knew how much this deal was was suspect. And he he made a point of saying, well, First Energy was not named. In the yeah, could complaint. you believe that? I mean, could that's you believe like that? almost, and I think he said he read the complaint. Anybody who read the complaint knows they're talking about First Energy. They identified I, I, them I, in I, every other way. That and was ridiculous. Thank God, Jeremy. That, yeah, go ahead. Thank God, Jeremy Pelzer, our, one of our state house reporters, he got up and he said, basically, okay, come on. Give me a break. This thing was stinky. <laughs> Everybody knew it was stinky. How can you stand there and say you didn't know it was stinky? And, and DeWine kept trying to say, well, I saw the commercials. I knew the commercials were out there. And it's, it's almost like a denial. And then you have to sit back and say, why? You, you're the governor. You know. And it, he said it at the same, in the same breath where he's saying, this is shaken faith in government. Right. And by you standing by the deal, that you're making it worse. 
and and that's the, I think kind of the point that Jeremy made in his question, and it's a similar point that Andrew Tobias, another state house reporter, made yesterday, is that you know a lot of what was in the complaint was known. You know, we knew so much about this process. And I think what federal investigators did was, is, is there were a lot of dots and what they did was they, they kind of filled in the lines between those dots and said, like, this is how we believe this is a, con- a criminal conspiracy. And, and I think what's, I think what's really kind of galling about DeWine's response is he was an attorney general. He was a prosecutor. Yeah, that's a good point. And he, and he, you know, he served in these positions where he, you know, was supposed to be on the lookout for stuff like this. And and now he's the governor of the state and he, he looks at this and he sees nothing wrong with it. I, I mean, I it, that's some real galaxy brain kind of stuff. I mean, to be able to look at this and go, you know, in any other criminal case, you know, they would they would go in and seize the ill-gotten gains of a criminal conspiracy. Well, in this case, the ill-gotten gains of a criminal conspiracy might be more than a billion dollars given to a private company. And, and Rich Exner, one of our guys, when this was going on, he messaged everybody saying, wait, if this is such a good deal, why did it take $60 million in bribes to get it through? If this is a good deal, do it over. Just start over. Repeal this because it stinks and you owe it to the citizens of Ohio to get rid of the stinky deal and do it again. But this time, audit every number first energy gives because they're liars they clearly were not nearly as broke as they said they were because they gave 300 million back to investors and spent 60 million dollars in bribes i mean that's a third of the billion dollars right so so right there we could have reduced the buyout by a third and maybe you could reduce it even more here's the other thing this company that is proven to be this sleazy is operating nuclear facilities. Do we really want a company that is so willing to to corrupt the entire process at the controls of nuclear fuel? (laughs) Does does that scare anybody that, that a company that is so willing to subvert the public interest has control of those plants? Maybe the thing to do is let them go bankrupt and get those plants into the hands of companies that don't subvert democracy. You know, it's a it's a very uh, Mr. Burns, Homer Simpson kind of control. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great. Yeah. That's, that's a great line. All right. Well, this is it's still I'm I was staggered when DeWine did what he you did. You know, Chris, we, as Chris Wernowski said, you know, we went into yesterday's briefing thinking, yeah, not only is he going to address it, but we thought. You know, we were hearing, oh, he's he's going to call for a repeal. That's the DeWine thing to do. You know, he's he likes to kind of swoop in and, you know, announce decisive things like that. But we were kind of I have to admit, we were kind of taken aback when he took that stance. Where the hell is Dave Yost? I mean, Dave Yost, who did not uncover this massive corruption, even though he's the attorney general. Where is he now? I mean, he should be the guy saying. I am going to go full bore in and figure out what happened in this deal. The state auditor ought to be jumping on this now saying, wait, I got to see if any of these numbers that we're using to to prop up this this lame company are real. And you're well, not hearing from it. I, I would say, given that the governor said that the, the first that he heard about this was, you know, when it came out in the news, 
Um, my guess is that like maybe a lot of the people in the state, especially people in the Republican Party, probably didn't know much about this investigation because they were keeping it pretty close to the the chest. Like like it was they stressed very clearly in the uh, the press conference they held the day that the arrests were announced that that they really really made this secretive because they knew. You know, I mean, politicians okay, are, right, are right, gossips, right. So, so they right, don't right. know. But stop. Davios doesn't know. We all knew, though. Mm-hmm. That That's the point. Right. We yeah, all knew that stunk. So Dave Yost should have just investigated it because it stunk to the high heavens. But on Tuesday, when this news breaks, you would think the attorney general who missed this thing would say, wow, I missed this thing, but I got to start looking into elements of it that are not explored in the criminal case, which is whether Ohio's money are all of that billion plus dollars is being properly spent. And and he and the auditor should both be on it. You're not hearing Chris, anything. I from believe him. he, he, he made some statement. It might've been on Twitter, you know, kind of huffing and puffing about this dirty deal or something, but I, no don't action. Know of, I don't know of anything that he's actually done. Yeah. Where are they? Well, you know, the problem is this will haunt them in two years when they're up for re-election because they're all standing by it. They're not taking the action to undo it. I have a feeling that the, the and, and Chris is going to argue with me on this because he says we live in an age of cynicism created by the president, but I think the residents of Ohio are going to scream about this until it's undone for the very reason that Chris talked about. You cannot keep ill-gotten gains. And at First Energy, this is ill-gotten gains. You, to reward that is to say it's okay. Right. We do have Republicans and Democrats who have already proposed these repeals. So we'll, we'll just have to see the people in the legislature, whether, you know, even the, the ones who voted for it, whether they're going to uh, change their minds. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. Why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine say he was ordering a statewide mask mandate that starts tonight? We've been debating whether this would come, Jane Coon, and he kind of hinted, as he often does on the weekend, that this might come this week. And then lo and behold, it came. But it came in the same time he was saying that what he's done in the highest risk counties is working. And now he wants to apply it to lower risk counties. What's the thinking there? Well, I think the thinking is that a good deal of Ohio's population is already under a, a mask mandate. And as you said, the, the preliminary data, he said, indicates that the rate of increase in new cases in those high-risk counties, that this has helped. And he said, you know, we think requiring it statewide is, is going to make a significant difference and is going to be key to making sure other counties don't progress uh, to that to that level. He, he also kind of said it will make a difference in what our fall looks like. So I think he's thinking about schools and he's thinking about fall sports. And, um, you know, he, he just kind of got to that point where it's like, we got to do this. It was interesting because he said we, we might have hit a plateau, but he doesn't know if we hit a plateau. I trust Rich Exner. Rich Exner had a story this week that said, <laughs> I think we've hit a plateau. And, and, and he said, and he's basically saying because of, the mask mandates in the in the counties that are rated red, more people are wearing masks. It's not 100 percent and that it has made the difference. So he wants to stop the orange and yellow counties from from moving there. I, I, I don't know. Chris Warnowski, do you think that this is more 
he's been trying to numb all the opponents to masks into knowing they'd have to wear them, that it was really leading them down the path to the day where it's less objectionable? Well, you're going to keep in mind one of the most significant opponents of masks is now uh, charged in, in a <laughs> Excellent major point. Major he's wearing one. So uh, the day after that happens, we get a, a statewide mask mandate. Uh, I, oh, I, I think, Chris, you're right. Like the the House right now is neutered. I mean, the householder won't step down. They Anything they do right now is suspect. So, you know, their ability to push back on this, I think, has been hampered. You really yeah. think that's why it came yesterday is because I, look, householder's out of the way? Wow, I don't know about the thinking of, you know, I mean, who knows what? he was thinking on it. I think, you know, I think this was a long time coming. I think, you know, he did, he did the thing where, you know, you give, you give your child the ability to do something on their own a couple of times. And then when they don't do it right, you show them how to do it. And, 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 you know, we're at that point, you know, I think he gave, I think he gave the public the benefit of the doubt, um, you know, over the objections of a lot of people, including people on this podcast. And, um, and I think, you know, I think it, it's just, it's the writings on the wall, you know, I mean, we're not going backward on this We're it's getting worse and, and, you know, something more decisive needed to happen. So, and masks work. I mean, the evidence is clear. If you wear a mask, it protects you. It protects the people around you. Uh, we should be wearing them. You're listening yeah. to this week in the CLE. What are the states affected by Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's coronavirus travel advisory? And what does it mean? Chris Wernowski, I was a little confused because this was all based on positivity ratings, which you'll explain here mm-hmm. in a minute. But the states that have banned Ohioans from coming in or making them quarantine before they can go out and about aren't included because they don't have high positivity rates. So I'm a little confused. And the governor didn't do a great job explaining his logic. But but I'm going to count on you to try and do it for us. Yeah. So bear with me because I'm just going to go straight from the story on this because it is kind of hard to explain. So the states that are actually impacted right now, I'll go through those first, are Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, and it looks like Arizona. Arizona. Yeah, I think I said Arizona. And oh, Puerto Rico's uh, in there too. Yeah. So there are a lot of states that are above this sort of 15% positivity uh, percentage that, that they have established as, as the baseline for uh, where they're going to issue these out-of-state travel advisories. Now, what a testing positivity rate means is how many people out of those tested are positive for COVID-19. So, so Ohio is around 6%. So people traveling into Ohio from one of those states or returning Ohioans are asked to self-quarantine for 14 days. And this average, this advisory is actually based on the uh, seven-day rolling average, and the list of states will be updated every week. So is the logic here that that the states that have the positivity rate that's higher means there are a whole lot more people walking around with this that don't know it. And if you visit one of those states and you're not taking precautions, your risk of getting it is much, much higher than in a state where it's six percent or five percent. And he didn't explain it, but that's what I was inferring. Right. The the way that he kind of explained it, he, he referenced a case where students traveled to Myrtle Beach in South Carolina, and out of 45 of the travelers, more than half of them 
have now tested positive with the coronavirus. And he said in the state's conversation with health departments, many of them are tracing cases that are that are related to out of state travel. So, you know, he didn't give a lot of you know, he didn't really delve deep into the logic or science behind this order. But but it does mirror things that other states have been doing right now. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. With contact tracing for the coronavirus going on for months, have health departments really determined that the virus is spreading in backyard barbecues, parties, and bridal showers? Jane Coon, this is fascinating because I think it plays into our personal psychology. The familiarity with people in our lives reduces our defenses. So we learned a lot about this yesterday from the governor and a little bit from the Cuyahoga County Health Director, what are they learning as they talk to people who were infected? Well, well, they've been talking to the 100-plus local health departments and getting a lot of feedback on, um, you know, what what's causing it to spread. And he said it would surprise you to know that they're they're seeing serious exposures just from everyday events like church services and house parties and neighborhood get-togethers and children's sleepovers and bridal showers and weddings. And apparently, you know, people go to these events, even though they maybe they're wearing a mask at work or when they go to the store or whatever. But then when they're at an event like this, they just start going maskless because they they're around family and friends and they they feel safe. You know, I, I, I feel for this, you know, about a month ago, I actually spent a weekend with my mom and my brother, which looking back, that was probably pretty stupid. One of our colleagues who will go nameless is off in the wilds of Michigan with her sister's family. And it looks like the same thing. But that's exactly what this is about. This is people getting together with family members that they that they don't live with, that they're not with all the time. And that's how it seems to be spreading. I don't know how you fix that because we're social creatures. We love our families and we're close to our friends. Uh, and and it just doesn't feel natural when you're in a house with your mom or your daughter or whatever to all be sitting around wearing masks. How do you get right. around that? How yeah, do I don't that? know. I mean, and he, you know, he gave some he gave some pretty compelling examples. Not only did he have a a, a woman on who, you know, was at either hosted or was at some party where one person spread it to others, and and she was very distressed about the whole thing and wanted people to know. Hey, this could happen to you. But one other example was a 70-year-old person who hosted a 4th of July party in in Ashtabula and then three people were diagnosed afterward and the host is now on a ventilator. And and then there were other examples like, you know, seven people getting sick after a house party in Mansfield and then a 4th of July party in Tuscarawas County you know, with 10 new cases and, you know, they go on yeah. and on. We really need to get the word out because, the, I mean, it's this is where it's spreading. This is, we've been wondering, we've been trying to get that contact tracing data forever. And we finally know what they've learned. And it's it's kind of frightening because I think many people that we know and people who listen to this podcast have probably taken those risks and and that's that's how this thing spreads. It was a lesson for me. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do we know about the Florida House owned by Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder, a house that gets some attention in court records about the $60 million bribery scheme? Federal prosecutors say Householder orchestrated 
Chris Ranowski, this is uh, this is interesting. This is where some of those ill-gotten gains apparently went. What do we know about it? So talk about a tongue twister. Householders house in Florida. Uh, <laughs> house speaker, householder. No, okay. Um, so apparently the federal complaint that uh, when they unsealed it uh, on Tuesday, it referenced the fact that he took several hundred thousand dollars and used them for personal expenses. And a hundred thousand of that money that was uh, part of a suspected bribe from First Energy was used to pay for some of the costs of his Florida home. So we started poking around and the court and property records in Collier County, Florida, uh, the home is in Naples, which is on the Gulf Coast. Um, he bought this house back in 2009 and he found himself uh, recently in the, the middle of some uh, monetary and zoning disputes over the property. So um, Collier County um, put a claim on the home after he failed to pay his property taxes in 2016 and 2017. And then by last year, he uh, was getting cited with zoning citations for issues related to his failure to maintain the house. So he bought the house for about $365,000 uh, back in 2009. The value of it dropped during the Great Recession uh, the value came back a little bit, um, but then Collier County said in 2016 and 2017, he was delinquent on his property taxes, which he eventually paid. Um, but there were there were issues with the home falling into disrepair and he got cited for code violations and stuff. So um, nobody has really said explicitly that um, the money was used to fix the house, but you know, who knows what, you know, he, but they did say in the complaint that he did use the money on that house. So, and, and the time frame from which the citations and things happened sort of lined up with um, what was happening you well, know, in what they say is a criminal conspiracy. The way this case is going, he'll get to keep it, right? I mean, First Energy doesn't have to give the money back. Why should he? Yeah, right. If the Fed seizes house, it is going to be uh, really interesting to see what they seize from First Energy. Yeah, right. Which, by well, the way, has not been charged with anything as of today. So They're uh, not even named. The, uh, but, the, but what this shows is that what could have been driving the scheme is good old-fashioned greed. He needed the money, and so he drives to the basket, becomes speaker, breaks this money machine, and he gets out of debt. Um, it's a it's a helpful thing to to know about what drives an official to basically blow the rest of their life. Yeah. This week in the CLE, can we talk about a good news milestone we passed earlier this week on the coronavirus? One having to do with the twenty one day average and the number of cases we have. Jane Cahoon, this this was a bad news story for thirty one days in a row. Every day for thirty one days. We had more cases than the 21-day average. We put Rich Exner on the on the case, and he came back with some good news. Please let everybody know what it is. Well, despite the fact we keep reporting 1,000-plus coronavirus cases each day, on two separate days over the past week, the number of new cases was below the 21-day average for cases. So on Sunday, we had... 1,110 new cases, and that was 63 below the 21-day average at that time, which was 1,173. And then again on Tuesday, we had 1,047 new cases, which was well below the 21-day the average of 1,211. So right. this could be a sign, you know, that, that we are plateauing to some degree. 
Yeah, I mean, it took a long time to hit that plateau, 31 days in a row of it going up. And actually, the average, the 21-day average kept going up on those days because the numbers that were falling off from the beginning of the 21 days were were lower than the ones we have. But it it was... It was reassuring because I was watching those numbers every day going, damn, man, we're above the 21 day average. We're above. We're above. And finally, we're below. So the turd and the punch bowl here, we <laughs> we should note that Wednesday was not a good day for case numbers. We went up to fifteen hundred and twenty seven. But, you know, the overall trend is certainly something to watch here. Yeah, I mean, I think I do think there's there's something to be said for looking at the seven day and the 21 day average rather than individual days because health departments report in goofy ways. And so you can have anomalies that are not necessarily meaningful. If we had three or four days in a row of 1500, that'd be meaningful. But well, anyway, well, it was good to see. We'll have to see see how the trend goes. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What are the next steps in the investigation of the $60 million first energy bribery scheme that Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder is accused of orchestrating? You know, Chris Warnowski, this is a little bit confusing because the court document that was unsealed this week is not an indictment. It's something else. And there's a number of steps that have to to follow. Uh, Our reporter, Eric Heisig, put together an explainer of this. So what was that document and what happens next? So a, what happened in this case is they were charged by by what is called a criminal complaint, which there there is some strategy behind when they use a criminal complaint versus an indictment. So in this case, part of the reason they did it this way was because they wanted to maintain the the secrecy and the sort of element of surprise that they needed to you know make sure that they could arrest everybody you know, at the same time when all of this information comes out. Usually what happens is a case, the prosecutors take evidence to a grand jury and a grand jury can take days, weeks, you know, months, even years to to come back with a decision on whether somebody should face criminal charges. With a complaint, they basically base the the arrest on a on an affidavit that has um, a lot of probable cause and and a lot of, of details about what they found in their uh, their investigation, and in federal cases, that's it's usually an affidavit sworn by an FBI investigator or a DEA investigator or somebody from one of the major federal law enforcement agencies. So in this case, they they have talked extensively about the the need to keep it quiet and, and an element of surprise. And you know sometimes grand juries can be leaky. And and so, you know, to present this case to a grand jury would mean it would, you know, the longer the, that sort of goes on, the, the likelihood of people learning about it and, and letting the people who are at the center of this investigation know they're under investigation, it, that sort of increases over time. So so, so, so what's next? Um, so now they will continue their investigation and now they will start. Actually, the next thing that will happen is they'll have a preliminary hearing. So, you know, that's where the the sort of charges are are read to them, and they can they can waive these hearings, which is is something that usually does happen. 
Um, a couple of people in this case have said they're not going to waive it. So they'll have to go and they'll have a hearing. And, and those these are hearings, great because you get tons of detail out of them. Right. So, so usually what happens at these preliminary hearings is there's testimony and, and they will actually have uh, a handful of, of people come up and talk about some of the evidence in the case. Um, some states actually do this process too. Um, all right. All right. But, 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 so, but so, case, so they have the preliminary hearing. What happens after that? Um, so then they, you know, they will decide whether they go, you know, where, if they remain out of jail, if they're flight risk. Um, and, and then they, uh, let's see, they will take so they go to a grand jury, take the evidence to a grand jury. Um, and then they will, they will issue a formal indictment at some point. So, so that'll have a list of counts and the particulars that, that make up a racketeering case. Um, they, it breaks it down. It has the elements of the crime much more clearly articulated than what right. we saw. And, you will start, and what, what you'll start to see in this process and, and what will likely happen in this case, um, as as they have said, is you'll see indictments of other people come out of the grand jury process. OK, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good conversation, Jane and Chris. This is uh, this is hot stuff. And Clearly, people want to hear it. Our audience for this just keeps climbing and climbing. So thanks to everybody for continuing to listen to this. Thanks, Chris and Jane. This week in the CLE, we'll be back tomorrow.